Due to a technical issue, a portion of this message from Thornton was lost. We have presented as much of the recording as possible. Full messages from Calvary and Boulder and Erie are also available, which cover a similar theme and scripture passage. Uh, we're in our series in the book of Revelation, and the book starts off by saying that this is the revelation of Jesus. It is a picture of who Jesus is, and we spent our time last week looking at that picture. And as we said, as, as we're looking at all these details that are said, as we're, we're seeing who this Jesus is, is a picture of him that tends to be, I don't know, pick your adjective, bigger, grander, more beautiful than we tend to picture Jesus to be. And it's from having this picture of Jesus that it flows into this section, into these letters written to these churches. It really does flow. Jesus starts talking at the end of chapter one, and he doesn't stop until the end of chapter three. So it's from this picture. Essentially, this is what's happening here. Jesus says, look at who I am. Look at this picture of me as king, as priest, and judge. And because that is who I am, because that is who I really am, Here's some instruction of what you need to hear. Now, there's a natural question that comes from this. These are letters written to these seven churches in the area, but why these seven? Why these particular churches? I mean, they're not the only ones. They're not the ones who are suffering the most or or the only ones that are doing well in some places. So why these seven churches? Um, And here's my answer. Ah. I mean, a lot of people have different reasons why that is the case, but we really don't know why these churches. We, we can make a guess as to why seven churches were picked. Numbers have significance uh, at, at this culture at this time, and, and seven is the number of, of completion, of perfection. And so uh, to grab the number seven, which is really important throughout the book of Revelation, makes sense. It also tells us some of the nature as to what the intended audience of this. Yes, it's written. These are real letters written to real churches. But the number seven helps us to see that this is, these are letters written for all of us. It's written for the complete number of churches that there are. And so we can be, gain some benefit from these letters that are written. Uh, the, the other one that's suggested is, um, is the, the natural way a courier would have taken this letter after John wrote down what he saw, the natural way a courier would have taken it would have gone through these seven churches. I, I have this map here that, that kind of demonstrates this. So in the bottom left-hand corner, it shows Patmos, the small island that John was at. Uh, if, if after he wrote it down, someone took it, was taking it to the churches, they would have naturally gone to the important nearby port city of Ephesus. And then there's a route north that they would have gone to Smyrna and up to Pergamum. And then there's a, a route that loops back down through Thyatira, Sardis, and then into Philadelphia. And I think we can all agree that but just by looking at the way the route would have gone. They clearly would have gone through West Philadelphia, uh, born and raised, uh, and then from there to Laodicea. So uh, that's the order that we find the books, and it's this natural progression that someone would have taken the letter. But again, it doesn't tell us why these particular seven churches. There's churches all around that area. So the best that I have, the best suggestion that that I can come up with is that there's something about what these seven churches were experiencing and the ways they were successful and the failures that they had. There was something about what was going on in these churches that's beneficial for all churches, all Christians to hear and benefit from. There's something about what they're experiencing that the instruction to them impacts churches uh, elsewhere. 
And, and you even see that in the text as well. As, as it goes throughout, it's each letter is said, write to the, letter, uh, to the angel of this church. So it's written for that church. But then elsewhere, it keeps saying, here is what the Spirit says to the churches, to the churches, plural. That there's something inclusive that that's, uh, has a greater context to what they are experiencing here that, that uh, helps other Christians as well. Even just the nature of Revelation, that these seven letters, they didn't just go to that church. Each church had a copy of Revelation that was read to them. So it's, it's not as though Thyatira is listening to is like, oh man, Jesus, Jesus just told Ephesus, he got them. It's more supposed to make them think of the fact like, oh, we have that capacity as well. We have that temptation to be pulled in the same way that they are. And so the way that we read these letters is not to try to sit here and guess, well, which one are we? Which one describes us? But to see that there is a temptation to be like these churches, uh, to, to, to go astray in the way that they have, or to be as successful in the way that they are in every church, in every place. So we have these seven letters, uh, and, and they're all written uh, in, in kind of this, this general uh, idea. So the letters start by, by giving this bigger picture of Jesus. It's using these descriptions that we talked about in chapter one. It gives this bigger picture of Jesus. And then from that, we're called to listen to him, to, to follow him rather than anything else, to fix our eyes to him. And as we do so, we're able to conquer, to find victory in this life. That by seeing the picture of Jesus, by hearing what he says, that is how we are able to conquer in this life. And think of the encouragement that would have given to these churches. These churches who are suffering, who are going through persecution, or, or the temptation to uh, put their allegiance and trust into the culture around them. You know, things are pretty safe and comfortable. Let's put our hopes and trust in the Roman Empire. To, to these churches who are feeling this way, to be told that this is how you conquer this is how there's victory in life. That is great encouragement to them and great encouragement to us. But, but so often when we think about what does it mean to conquer in Jesus' name, there's, there's pictures of what is it that we're doing? How, how are we gonna rush out there? How are we gonna do this? Let's, let's rise up and fight. Let's legislate in the kingdom of God. And, and yet the picture of conquering here, the picture that's given throughout the book of Revelation is one that isn't looking like those pictures that we tend to come up with. Conquering in the book of Revelation comes from patient endurance. Patient endurance is something that we've already seen show up. Uh, Revelation 1.9, John is talking to these seven churches. He says, I am your brother. I'm with you in this, in the tribulation, in the hardships that you're going through, in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance. Patient endurance shows up three times in chapter two, right at the very beginning, verses two and three. And then right at the end in verse 19, 17, at the end, towards the end, um, 19. And so what we see is this picture that patient endurance leads to conquering. For these churches who are struggling, who are suffering, who, who uh, have this tendency to put their eyes towards other things, to be overwhelmed by what's going on around them, Jesus says, here is what conquering looks like. Here is what victory in this life looks like. And it looks like patient endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, looking to him no matter what struggles or enticements are around us, but fixing our eyes to this Jesus, enduring waiting until the day that he returns. That is how there's victory in his life. 
Now that is not the easiest thing to do, to patiently endure. Sometimes I can go a good 30 seconds patiently enduring. So the idea that this is what victory looks like is something that's hard for us to do, let alone the fact that that's not a very satisfying answer. How do we win? Will we patiently endure? So often in those times, like the tendency is for us to try to take control of something. Like, no, we, we got to be doing more. We can't just sit here. We can't just be waiting. We, we got to do more. And so in those times, we try to wrestle control. We try to tell the Jesus of chapter one, who, who has all these vivid descriptions about him. You're like, you know what, Jesus? I think we got this. We, we can take control of it from here. And the warning that comes from this chapter is that when we do that, when our focus goes from anything but Jesus, when we try to wrestle control of the things around us, that is not conquering. That's actually when difficulty starts to come in. So before we can actually look at what this conquering is, before we can show the end fruits of patient endurance, we're given three examples of churches in chapter two who don't do well at this, who try to wrestle control for themselves, who tell Jesus that they got this. That when our impatient, uh, impatience kicks in, that we're no longer conquering. When we're not enduring, that's when there's no victory. And that's why we have these letters to some of these churches. Uh, the first example of this is the church of Ephesus that was just read for us. Jesus follows the same structure that we find throughout all of these letters. It's uh, right to the angel of this church, uh, gives them this description. And, and I don't think the descriptions are random. It's not as though John's throwing, or, or Jesus himself is throwing like darts at chapter one to see, all right, what, what name for myself? What description of myself am I gonna tell this church? They're all related to what they need to hear. And so Jesus says, uh, write to this, this church in Ephesus that I am the one with, with the stars, the angels, the control of the heavens in my right hand. I'm the one in the midst of the churches. I am with you. And it's from that understanding that he can speak to them and all the other churches and say, I know. I know what's going on. I know you. Think of the comfort that comes from that. That that Jesus that we got that picture of is one who's so close to his churches that he knows what they're like, what they're doing well at. There's so much comfort that comes from that. Jesus knows his church. He cares about what's going on in them. And he tells the church of Ephesus, I know you and you're doing so well in a lot of these places. I, I, know, I know your efforts, I know your works, I know your toil. I know the things that you're doing that may seem like no one else around you is noticing. I, I know the quiet things that are important that may not get much fanfare or attention, but I see it. Think of the encouragement that comes from that. That Jesus is right there with his churches. And, and there's so many things that we do in life that feel like they're overlooked or no one notices or no one cares. And Jesus says, I know. I know the prep that you're doing to point kids to Jesus on a Sunday morning. I know the hours that you're logging with students on Wednesday nights. I, I know the prayers that you're doing that you're not drawing attention to, but you are praying faithfully to, for people who never even realize it. I, I know the trash that you picked up that you didn't have to. I, I know the, the conversations that you have with people when you are at the end of your energy and emotions and you, you are there for someone who's, who's struggling. I know it. I see it. Jesus knows his churches. He knows what they're doing well at. 
And there's a lot that this church in Ephesus has been excelling at. At one place in particular, they are really good at rooting out false teachers. They are making sure that they are firm in what they believe. I I think they would have enjoyed our series that we were in this, this past summer, looking at our statement of faith, holding to the truth of scripture, looking at what do we believe about all others. That is something that would have excited this church. And Jesus says, I know, I see that, I see what you're like. But the flip side of Jesus knowing and seeing what people like is he can see where his churches go astray. Verse four starts in a very terrifying way. It says, but I have this against you. Wouldn't that be horrifying to hear that? Maybe I'm the only one who would would fear being told that by Jesus in, in my role as pastor here to be told I have this against you. That's something terrifying. But what is it that Jesus has against the church of Ephesus? He says, you have lost the love that you had at first. Now, this is something debated. What what is this being talked about? Is this talking about love for Jesus or love for others? It sure is. Is it talking about that they've lost their love for Jesus or their loss for others? You know, I think it is. And the reason why I say that is you can't have one without the other. That that if we don't have uh, love for Jesus, then we're not gonna have the means and motivation to have real sacrificial love for others, which is what we're called to have. And if we don't have love for others, then we are demonstrating that we don't have love for Jesus. And so what we're seeing in this church is that they're committed to truth. They are holding to what scriptures say. They are not letting a hint of heresy come into their churches, and yet it's not motivated by love. Love for Jesus that they're doing these things, that they're holding on to these things, but it's not out of a love and commitment to Jesus. It's not coming from the overflow of love from him, but it's also a lack of love for others, that they're holding on to truth. They're focused on that, but in doing so, they're cutting out others, that they're weeding out anyone who's saying a false gospel, that uh, so often what this happens when we are not working out of the motivation of patient endurance, when we are not conquering, when we are saying that we want to maintain truth, what often happens is it's a quick move from we are maintaining truth to we are the ones saying what is true. And what we see in, in, in a church like Ephesus is that they are cutting off people who might have even, even just a, a little bit of false gospel to them. And they're taking Jesus from being a savior and turning him into a subject matter. And don't we see this danger in our churches today as well? Maybe we've seen it in our life, that when we first started following Jesus, we were known for our love for him that we would read our Bibles gladly because we were experiencing the Jesus who saved us, that we would pray with people and for all kinds of things, that we would come to church and we didn't care what songs were being sung. We are praising our Jesus. And yet if we look at where our life now, are we still defined by that sort of love for him? Or has it become something that we're used to? That he's become something of our past, a subject matter rather than a savior? Or maybe we see it in uh, love for, for others in the church. Maybe it's who we are, but if nothing else, we've probably seen churches like this where they are committed to the truth and what they're doing is, is they batten down the hatches, that they are the ones saying what is true and it's, it's led churches to divide over non-essential issues. You believe something slightly different from the, than me, but you still hold to the truth of the gospel and the authority of scripture. Well, guess what? You are wrong and you're something different. You're something other. 
or even just the fact that some of the people that we might meet who've, who've spent the most amount of time studying the Bible, that they might have the words of, of Jesus' grace memorized, and yet there isn't any evidence of grace in their life. That, that they read about the grace that they are saved by, but it doesn't make them more gracious, it makes them more grumpy. Or maybe we've seen this in our love for people outside of the church as well. That many of us, when we first started following Jesus, we tell anything with a pulse about the gospel. But now as we look back, maybe the last time that we declared that we're following Jesus was at our baptism. And this is the temptation that we see in churches. It's something that Ephesus is going to. They are so committed to the truth but they're doing so not motivated by love for Jesus or for others. And, and there's a danger in this because it sounds good, doesn't it? We are committed to the truth. We, we want to be that. We as a church want to be defined by the truth, but the danger that happens when we're not enduring, when this isn't coming from our eyes fixed on Jesus, where we aren't turning to him rather than anything else, it quickly becomes we are the only ones. So we surround ourselves with like-minded Christians. We cut off all other people. We ignore the love that we are called to have for every single person. And what happens in these times when we're not enduring is our efforts to maintain truth become just that. They're our efforts, and that's not conquering. The second example of what it looks like to not endure, to not conquer, is the opposite of Ephesus. And it's the fourth church that we see in, in chapter two, and it's the church of Thyatira, where, where the church in Ephesus was, was so good at, at uh, maintaining truth, but they missed love. The church in Thyatira were known for their love. Uh, we read this in Revelation 2, verse 18. It says, To the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and the feet like burnished broads. Okay, so these aren't just random descriptions that, that should remind us. This is judgment language. There's judgment coming to this church. But it starts by saying, this is what they've done well. I know your works, your love and your faith and your servants and pa- uh, service and patient endurance. And the latter works exceed the first. So Jesus says, I know you. I know what you have done well, and you have endured so well. One place in particular that that they're known for is their love. This is a church defined by their love. And Jesus says, I know you. I know what you've done well at. Where the church in Ephesus was not motivated by love, this church in Thyatira very much so is. But while the church in Ephesus was known for maintaining truth, Thyatira was not. Because it goes on to say, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have uh, allowed this Jezebel, this figure to rise up in the church. So the reference of Jezebel goes back to the Old Testament in uh, 1 Kings uh, chapters 16 and and 21. 21, uh, 1 Kings 16, 21. We don't have time to turn back to it. I'm sorry about that. So write down 1 Kings 16 and 21 so you can read about Jezebel there. Essentially what the reference of Jezebel is, is it's saying that this figure in the Old Testament, this woman married the king of Israel and had this power and sway about her. And in doing so actually led the nation of Israel away from God for many years. And it's saying to the church of Thyatira, this woman has raised, uh, been raised up in your church and has power and sway about her as well, but is leading people away from God. 
And uh, the, what we're seeing is, is this danger of this church of, of wanting to love. And, and wouldn't we say that's a good thing? Don't we want to be defined by love? Aren't we called by Jesus to be defined by love? And yet by their focus on that, by turning outward, where the church in Ephesus turned inward to their detriment, this is a church focused fully outward. They're missing the truth that's supposed to be at their core. This woman has raised up in the church and out of love, of support for them, has actually made it so they're not rooted to the truth of the gospel anymore. And the danger of this is, is we, we want to focus on love. We want as a church to be defined by love. Anyone can come and we will care for them, show compassion on them. But the danger comes when that's not connected to truth anymore. And we're starting to live out of our own mentality because it's, it's a quick move when we are no longer enduring, not focusing on Jesus, not loving out of the overflow of love that he gives to us. When we have love as the ultimate thing that we want to be known for, it quickly moves to uh, uh, us, again, operating out of our own power where love starts to look a lot like just wanting to be liked because it's a quick move from we love all people to we don't want to upset people. We, we don't want to make people angry at us because we want to be liked, right? No one wakes up, well, I don't want to speak for all of us. No normal person wakes up and, and thinks, you know what would be fun today? To completely be marginalized in the culture, to be ridiculed for, for being a bigot, to be a laughingstock as a relic of the past. You know what would be really great? To, to just lose all footing in the world around us and be looked down upon on something lesser. Doesn't that sound awesome? No, but it's, it's so easy when we say that we want to be loved to mean we, we want to be liked and so we don't want to speak out and, and rock the boat. We don't want to say anything that's going to criticize people. And what's happening in that is we become disconnected to the truth of the gospel and our attempts to love, it's not a real love. It's not a real a love with any worth. It's a love that we're trying to produce on our own and we're the standards of what, what is actually love? What does it mean like to show compassion on others? And that's not enduring. That's not conquering. And we see the difficulty as well when a figure like this woman rises up in this church, this one referred to as a Jezebel, that, that it's someone who clearly has, has uh, ability and gifts and talents that people flock to her that want to listen. And out of love, it becomes easy to say, yeah, yeah, we, we might have some issues, but shouldn't we overlook that out of care for this person? Yeah, they're saying things that maybe we shouldn't do or, or think or believe or, or necessarily obey, but, but look at how much good that they're doing. Look at how many people are claiming Jesus' name because of the work of this figure. And isn't that worthwhile? And don't we see this in our churches today as well? It, it's somewhat ironic. Actually, I'm going to go with it is absolutely devastating that this has been a passage used throughout a lot of church history to, to point at women in the church and say you're being a Jezebel. But so often it's done by pastors or elders or leaders in the church who've been given far too much authority too, mu too long of a leash to cover up abuses. It's too much uh, uh, consideration for, but look at the good that they're doing. If we go against this pastor, wouldn't that be the unloving thing to do? That so often it's these religious leaders who act as the Jezebel while claiming others to be that. 
But the difficulty is that there's a capacity in all of us to be a Jezebel-type figure, to say the ends justify the means, to take control of things on our own, or to be like the church in Thyatira, to overlook terrible things in the church out of, but look at the gifting they have, or let's be loving to them. Let's, let's ignore the truth that's going on so that we can reach out and care for other people. Those are good things, right? But if it's out of our own efforts, if it's not from our eyes fixed on this Jesus, then that's not conquering. That's not enduring. The third example that we have, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's more the focus of the churches we see in chapter three, but the third example of what it looks like to not conquer, to not endure, is through compromise. And we see that through the church at Pergamum. Uh, This is Revelation chapter two, verse 12. It says, to the angel of the church at Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. All right, judgment language again. Let's see what's going on here. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have, uh, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice immorality. So too, uh, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So again, this is Jesus saying, I know you. I know what you've gone through. You've gone through some of the worst things, even people dying by following after me. And you have been so good at, at, at maintaining your faith in me. But now things are starting to fracture a little bit. Pergamum was a city at the time that was really important for the Roman cult. This is way too short of a summary, but I'm, I'm just going to give us the essentials of what we need. So uh, essentially what it was is, is uh, Caesars, uh, rulers uh, of the Roman Empire, uh, were called gods. Uh, this happened at first after they died, um, that they were deified, they were made into gods, and so people had to swear allegiance to them. But then uh, Caesar thought, well, if I'm going to be made a god anyways, why not get the benefits now? And so it became this rule of the land that you needed to swear fealty to Caesar. Was, uh, what you needed to be part of the culture, to not stand out. You needed it f- to have a job. Uh, the, uh, everything was tied to what guild you were part of. And to be part of the guild, you had to s- declare Caesar as lord. There weren't independent contractors. And, and so what we can gather is that Pergamum did really good at exclusively saying that Jesus is lord. But now things are starting to fracture a little bit. There's some people that are there that are being equated to Balaam. Again, we don't have time to go back to it, but this is Numbers chapter 22 through 25. And essentially what it's saying is that there's people, these false teachers who have come from the outside, and they're starting to ask these questions of, is it really worth it? Do we really need to maintain rigid on this? Can't we bend a little bit? Maybe it's about swearing fealty to Caesar. Why don't we just say the words? Even if we don't believe Caesar is Lord, wouldn't it be easier if we just did it? And once again, we see what it looks like to not endure, to compromise, to give in to those questions of, is it really worth it? Is it really worth being faithful on this? We see these different examples of what it looks like to not endure, to take things by our own work and effort, and, and uh, whether that's emphasizing truth and missing out on love or, or focusing on love but not being rooted to the truth or, or asking that question of, do we really need to stand firm on this point or can we bend on it? 
There's, there's all of these different pictures of what does it look like when our eyes move away from Jesus and focus on the things that are around us, those that are difficult or those that entice us. But we are given a picture of what it looks like to endure and what it looks like to conquer. And that's the last church that we'll focus on. It's, it's the second church of Revelation 2, which is a little bit confusing, but it's in, in verses 8, uh, starting in verse 8. This is the church in Smyrna. It says, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write to the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is a church that's experienced some tremendous difficulty. They're they're, uh, materially impoverished. It says, but you are rich, you have spiritual goods. But they've also gone through difficulty. The church, uh, Smyrna was another place that was important for the Roman cults. And again, way too fast of a background. in the, in the beginning of things, uh, Jews were, were freed. They didn't have to say that Caesar is Lord because they were monotheist. And so they were ex- excluded from doing that by the Roman government. Christians were looked at from the outside as like, oh, they're just, they're, just, they're just part of the Jews. And so they were excluded from that as well. But what we can gather from history at the time and what's being said here, the focus on they're claiming they're Jews, but they're not, the synagogue of Satan, what it looks like is some of the, the Jews in, in Smyrna were starting to go up to Romans and say, hey, they're actually not part of us. There's difficulty that comes from that. And it's in those moments where there's, there's difficulty like that when, is when the temptation is, well, let's, let's take care of it on our own. Let's look away from Jesus. Let's stop enduring. Let's, let's see what we can do to save ourselves, to make things go right. What's in our power to make things go well? And yet Smyrna doesn't do any of that. They don't sacrifice any part of truth or love. They don't compromise. They endure faithfully. And maybe that makes us start to celebrate. Yes, a church that's finally doing well. There's all this judgment language throughout this. And here's Smyrna, they're doing well. And their reward is things are gonna get worse. You're gonna go through so much more difficulty. Have more reason to endure throughout this. And if that's the message we hear, it doesn't make sense why we have the temptation to not endure, to try to take control of things on our own. That if the promise here is difficulty, that for 2,000 years, the promise to churches is there's going to be more and more reason to endure. For 2,000 years, it's, hey, Jesus is coming back and we are waiting for that moment. When we start to wait like that, don't we try to take control of what we can? Or, or even just how marketable the message is. Hey, things are going to be hard and they're going to keep getting hard. Isn't that less marketable than what we see the other churches doing? If you join us, we are the ones who hold what is true. We get to define what really is truth. Or if you join us, we will love you no matter what. You don't, you don't really have to, to hold to what we, we say on these things. We are going to love and embrace you no matter what. Or uh, you, you could join us and you don't have to change any part of your life. Just tack Jesus on top of what you're already doing and you'll be fine. Isn't that a much more marketable message, any of those? We can get a lot of people claiming Jesus' name if, if we did any of those things. But it wouldn't be Jesus. Not the real Jesus. 
not the one whose picture we're given throughout, not the one who's, who's reminded, I am the one who's writing to you. I am the one who's, who's described in chapter one and all throughout this message. It wouldn't be truth. It wouldn't be true love. It wouldn't be true life or hope or direction. And it wouldn't give us an accurate understanding of what this world is because if we're honest with it, there are tons of difficulties throughout it. If we cut off the real Jesus and we try to live by our own strength, it's only in this picture of him that we have that there's the ability to endure what we find in this world. And it's only this Jesus who can give this real hope. Remember, we said that the descriptions of Jesus are important. The description of Jesus to the church in Smyrna is that he is the first and the last. He is the one who's able to last longer than any persecution that you'll go through, Smyrna. He is the one who will stand the test of time when empires will fall around him. He is the one who endures and is able to help us to endure as well. And it's only this Jesus, this real Jesus, who can give the promises that we find throughout. It is through endurance, by focusing your eyes on him. It is through patient endurance that there is conquering in this world. And the promises laced throughout this chapter show what conquering looks like. In in verse uh, seven, it it shows that uh, those who endure, those who conquer, will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. The, the ones who conquer in verse 11 will not hurt by the second, uh, by, be hurt by the second death, but receive a crown of life. Verse 17, they'll be given hidden manna, a white stone, a new name. Due to a technical issue, a portion of this message from Thornton was lost. We have presented as much of the recording as possible. Full messages from Calvary and Boulder and Erie are also available, which cover a similar theme and scripture passage.